0: to episode 72 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Olegi. Peter Lim is overseas, and we'll be back soon to East Lansing. Joining me today are two experts on Mali, Dr. Bruce Whitehouse of Lehigh University, and former ambassador to Mali, Vicky Huddleston. A little bit about our guests. Professor Whitehouse is uh, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Lehigh. He got his PhD from Brown University. And his research focuses on transnational migration, states in Africa, and marriage and social change. He is the author of a recent book published by Indiana University Press entitled, Migrants and Strangers in an African City, Exile, Dignity, Belonging as well as several journal articles and chapters in scholarly collections. He recently spent a year as a Fulbright scholar in Bamako and writes a wonderful blog, which I've been relying on heavily to keep abreast of events in Mali, that goes by the title of Bridges from Bamako. And the URL mm. is bridgesfrombamako.com. Uh, Vicki Huddleston is a career diplomat and was the United States Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for African Affairs in the office of the Secretary of Defense from 2009 to 2011. She's a former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Africa and also former U.S. Ambassador to Madagascar and to Mali. She was deputy chief of mission in Haiti and director and deputy director of Cuban affairs at the U.S. Department of State, as well as the principal officer of the U.S. interests section in Havana and Chargé Affair at the interim in Ethiopia. Prior to joining the U.S. Department of Defense, she was a visiting scholar at Brookings Institution and is also a fellow at the Institute of Politics of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with you, Bruce. Uh, When did the rebel insurgency in northern Mali start, and why? Can you locate us here in this Sahelian crisis?
1: Your question is an excellent one, and there are some people who would answer that, in fact, the rebel insurgency began five decades ago, shortly after independence, and that there's always been a simmering insurgency in the north of Mali based around demands for autonomy or separatism by a group of people who identify as Tuareg so this is an ethnic category that we'll need to discuss but this sort of low intensity rebellion has been going off and on since the early 1960s and notably surged back up again in the early to mid-90s and then went away for a while. It spiked again around 2006. And so what we've been seeing in northern Mali since the end of 2011 has really just been the latest in a series of uprisings, uh, all of which have involved Tuareg claims for some kind of recognition or autonomy or, more recently, independence but all of which also involve other factors and other peoples aside from the Tuareg. So it's a long history and I'm by no means the most qualified to talk about the history of the Tuareg and their relationship with the Malian nation-state, but this is by no means a new phenomenon that that Mali has been facing in, in the last year. What is new is a combination of different groups coming from other parts of the region, coming across from Algeria, which borders Mali to the north, armed groups that operate throughout the Saharan region, in Mauritania, in Niger, as well as in Mali, uh, and groups that specifically have an Islamist political agenda. Uh, so this is something that has only been visible in northern Mali for about the last decade, and has been I think seen as a fairly benign, still a, a, a sinister but not especially dangerous presence until just the last couple of years. And it's, it's only really since the French began bombing the uh, Islamist forces that had come to occupy the northern 60% of Malian territory last year that uh, I think the rest of the world has taken notice of, of these groups and the threats that they might present.
0: That's a very interesting picture, much more complicated than it often is portrayed in the media. The Northern Mali is often described as simply a new front in the global war on terror. But I think it's important to, to draw on that uh, deep history to really complicate the picture. Let's turn to uh, Ambassador Huddleston. The Colombian historian Gregory Mann has written recently that he supports France's military intervention in Mali. I think at the risk of mischaracterizing him, he, he sees it as a bit of a Kosovo option, sorts. He called it, quote, necessary, he also has called it not a neocolonial offensive, and yet Mann has also noted how, quote, a decade of American investment in special forces training, cooperation between Sahelian armies and the U.S. in counterterrorism programs run by both the State Department and the Pentagon has at best failed to prevent a new disaster in the desert and at worst sowed its seeds. So what has US, <laughs> foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy been, and what's your perspective on it?
2: Well, th- thank you. It's great to be here. First of all, I couldn't agree more with the entire statement. We have to be very thankful to France, because had France not intervened, Mali today, in my view, would be under Salafast religious extremist control combined with crime, terrorism. And that would mean Malians would be pushed out into the surrounding areas and you could have something approaching a genocide when you had the imposition on a Sufi, moderate Muslim population of this harsh writ of sharia and the consequences of that kind of taking up power of these Algerian extremists combined with other extremists from around the area. Now. U.S. policy, and this will take me a minute or two. The United States policy has been off again, on again, and some of it has to do with this idea of militarization. The United States gets involved, and then they fear, oh, militarization, and they begin to pull back. When the Salafists first came into northern Mali from Algeria, as Bruce said, it was the end of the Algerian Civil War. It was 2003. The group for Salafist prayer and combat, led by a man whose nom de guerre was Alpara, the fox, brought 15 European tourists. And in the end, the Germans paid ransom about $5 million for them. That was the first mistake that not the United States made, but Europe made. The beginning of the payments of ransom that allowed these groups to grow. Now, the United States' first response was, maybe we should do a unilateral strike. Well, unilateral strikes never work. The only way you can have a successful campaign against an enemy, even a foreign enemy, has to be in concert with the region. Fortunately, that didn't happen. The United States then opted for a much better policy, and that was help the region to have a regional policy to confront and defeat the Salafast. Because this is not a Malian problem. This is Algeria. This is Libya. This is Niger. So we did that, and in fact, that was successful. Alpara moved from Mali to Niger to Chad, where he was defeated and is now in jail in an Algerian prison, being an Algerian. About four years later, when Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb replaced the first movement, the United States policy changed. And we said, we will help the region contain the Salafist." Well, containing any group in an area of 5,000 square miles is absolutely impossible. So the strategy of contain, was a failed strategy, and it was a failed strategy not only because contain couldn't work, but it also provided the training, which was good for the Malian army, but it didn't provide an objective for the Malian army. In other words, we didn't give them the intelligence, we didn't give them the equipment, we didn't give them the mentoring that would have allowed them to fight the Salafist. And so what happened? They fought the Turegs. And of course, that completely broke the groups we had trained because the Tuaregs who are integrated into the military went home to family and clan. They're not going to fight against their family and clan. And the others ran, fled to Bamako, and overturned the government, which had become corrupted by the smuggling payments and the ransom payments, and indeed, by the West's failure to concentrate with the Malians and with the region on a regional strategy to defeat the Salafists.
0: Following up on those interesting (laughs) points, I was looking up your Twitter feed a couple of days ago, and you recently tweeted support for U.S. drones in the Sahel. And a few days ago, General David M. Rodriguez, the likely next leader of AFRICOM, the Africa Command of uh, U.S. Armed Forces, estimated a need to increase surveillance and spying by the U.S. in the region by a factor of 15. Why such willingness to further militarize U.S. policy in Africa? What do you think it will achieve, or what do the proponents believe it will achieve, both for U.S. interests, but I think most importantly for the benefit of local people?
2: Well, I think, first of all, this idea of militarizing the continent is wrong, and I disagree with that because I think... The characterization or the policy? (laughs) I don't think there is a policy of militarizing the continent. What the United States is doing is trying to train and empower African military so they can take care of the security and the protection of their citizens. And that's absolutely essential to any state because no state can be secure, no state can have democracy and development unless it has security. And so we don't believe it's our job to go fight Africa's wars. We believe it's our job to help Africans have that capacity. Now, the question is, how do you do that? Because Africa now is faced with a very unique situation. African wars in the past, while influenced by colonial borders and by transnational threats, have been African wars. They've generally been a competition for power, differences between ethnic groups, differences between religion. Mali is different. Somalia is a little bit different, but Mali is really different. Mali has become a battlefield for foreign forces because you have Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, an extremist group in Mali fighting not so much the Malians. Yes, they united with briefly <laughs> the insurgents or the rebels in the north who are dissatisfied. But that is a convenient uniting, and now the secular Turags have separated themselves from the Salafists. Their objective initially was to overtake Algeria. Safe haven and Mali return, and overtake Algeria, because it was a reoccurrence of the Algerian Civil War because we and the Europeans allowed it to fester with wrong military strategy and lots of ransom. They got stronger and stronger, and then they had the breakaway unit because they had enough Africans then, sub-Saharan Africans in it, to look west. They didn't want to just take over, return to Algeria. They weren't from Algeria. They wanted to go south and take over that area. But the ultimate objective of any Al-Qaeda franchise in Africa is the West. And if Africa doesn't have the capacity to fight transnational threats, which they don't because they're hardened extremists, they have weapons and trained combatants from Libya and around the world, then Africa has to have the assistance of the West. If France hadn't intervened with their air power and mobility and command and control, Mali would be in the hands of Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb. So those drones that are going to be in Niger and looking over the area, they'll provide the intelligence for the French air power, for the Chadian and Nigerian troops that are on the ground, so that instead of running into an attack, uh, they can successfully carry out the campaign against Al Qaeda.
1: Bruce,
0: do you want to follow the comments up?
1: Yeah, I think it's certainly accurate to portray the the presence of these uh, Salafist groups in in Mali as you know, externally generated. That the uh, Salafism is not an ideology that has a great deal of popular support in Mali, and it's important to point out that the Islamist groups that are operating there for the most part have a foreign provenance. The Algeria, as was indicated with uh, respect to al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, its offshoot organization, the movement for oneness and jihad in West Africa. You look at their command structures, they're mostly led by Mauritanians, Algerians. There are black Africans in the rank and file of these organizations, but not not very many of them. So at, at this point they, they don't really represent but a, popular movement in West Africa in, in, in the way that insurgent groups elsewhere in the world do. But I think it's also important to point out that all this was brought on by the weakness of the Malian state and that Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb and, and other groups I don't think would have posed a threat to a strong state sufficient to topple it, you know, and to defeat its military forces on the battlefield. but starting really in the last, over the last decade and particularly in the last five years, the Malian government has really seen its power eroding from within, that the sort of weakness of the state has largely grown out of the willingness of the political class in Bamako to to cut deals with shady characters and to flout the law and to weaken their own institutions in, in favor of the interests of individuals and groups that are, that are outside the state. So I think what we're looking at is not primarily a military problem that needs to be addressed. I, I think that in the absence of an effective and legitimate government in Bamako, we're going to continue to see instability and ungoverned spaces in, in the north of Mali and the hard part of this job is not going to be sort of containing the Salafis and other groups militarily. The hard part is going to be fostering the creation of a Malian state that is stable, that's secure, and that's legitimate in the eyes of most Malian people, including the people who live in the north. So the question of, I guess, simmering discontent with the Malian government isn't something that simply concerns the Tuareg or the Arabs or other groups that live in northern Mali, this is a question that concerns everyone in Mali. And until a legitimate state exists in the capital, I think we're gonna to continue to see a, a cycle of instability and violence playing out in the north of the country and spilling over into other nations as well.
2: Can I add a comment here? Absolutely. Because uh, you know, I I agree with Bruce completely on the problem of the Malian state, its lack of control in the north. Where I think we have certain divergence is, yes, the Malian state has to be built up. It's absolutely critical, but this is gonna take years. This is gonna take years. So you can't build up the Malian state effectively until you defeat the Salafast, because the Salafast have to be defeated. You can't, I think if we've learned anything from Mali, you can't ignore an Al-Qaeda franchise even operating in the distant Sahara Desert, because they become stronger and stronger. And as they become stronger, then, first of all, they take over a whole area of Mali and impose a very harsh law on that part of Mali. And then what did we do? More or less appease them, say, oh, well, if you just stay up there, it would be all right. And the next thing we know, they were on their way to Bamako. And the next thing we know, they would have, Reinforce their links with Boko Haram. You've seen that Boko Haram has now taken
0: uh, radical Islamist group in northern Nigeria. Exactly, exactly.
2: Only attacks. in this case, they're Nigerian. <laughs> they're, you're not talking about, you know, a foreign force like in Mali, which is, as Bruce said, Mauritanian and, and Algerian. They've just taken seven hostages. Why have they taken seven hostages? So they can get Western payments and grow even stronger. And so then you, you already have the link between Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb and Boko Haram. So then you, you unite them. And then what happens next? Nigeria begins to fall apart. Where do we get our oil? Twelve percent of our oil becomes, uh, comes from Nigeria. So for our own interests, But for Africa's interests, so that you don't have whole states taken over by terrorist groups or a nexus of terrorism, religious extremism, and crime, you have to stop it. So I just interject here, and it was too long of an interjection, Bruce, is that you're right about the Malian state, but we first have to defeat the Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb. And for this, they need the assistance of not just France, but the United States and, uh, and the region. I mean, you see the region responding very good. The Chadians, the Nigerians, they're up there. They're fighting the uh, extremists.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's no doubt in my mind that these groups constitute menace to not only the stability of, of the Malian state, but all the states in, in the region. And, and Ambassador Huddleston mentioned the link with Boko Haram. There were discoveries in Timbuktu after it was liberated from the Islamist forces by the French in January that hundreds of Boko Haram fighters had in fact been training there and they, they left mm-hmm. behind evidence to, to that effect. We've seen the threat that these groups pose to Western interests through the, the attack in uh, eastern Algeria in January where they took dozens of hostages and, and dozens of people were killed. So they clearly represent a threat that goes beyond the, the borders of Mali and I think menaces the interests of the United States and other Western governments. So to me the question is not, should they be defeated militarily or should the Malian state be built up? Both those processes have to happen. What I'm afraid of seeing is a primarily military response that sort of papers over the problems in Bamako Mm -hmm. and allows the same weaknesses and uh, lack of institutional controls that, that really brought this whole problem uh, upon the country of Mali to begin with, Uh, unless those problems are addressed in a very meaningful and concerted fashion, starting now, I I think we're going to see much more protracted conflict than we otherwise would. And my concern right now, there's there's talk of holding elections in Mali in July of this year. There's a lot of skepticism that the government's capable of organizing them, even with a lot of international help. You have hundreds of thousands of displaced persons, at least 200,000 Malians living abroad as refugees. How are they going to be included in the process? There's a the question of who's really ready to step forward and make a legitimate claim to representing the Malian people. I think it's going to take a long time to hash those problems out, and I certainly don't see them being resolved before July. So. Mm-hmm the appeal that I would make to the international community is to work with Malians over the next several months, over the next year, and help them to give them the space that they need in part by dealing with the Islamist threat in the north, to set up a viable state. Not simply to replace the structure that was there before that got eroded, but actually to to make a fresh start and build up a government that most, if not all, Malians can recognize as legitimate, that they feel is going to represent their interests and not simply extract resources from them. If that can take place in the short term, then I think the long-term threat, not only from Islamist and Salafi groups operating in northern Mali, but the Tuareg insurgency of drug smuggling, of various kinds of illicit activities in that region, I think all those threats are going to diminish if the problem in Bamako is dealt with
2: effectively. And, but then let's go to the north, because what you're saying is right, but I don't think that the problem will be solved by repairing the Balian state and defeating the Salafast unless we add in the third component. And Bruce referred to that in the very beginning. Since 1958, the Tuaregs and the Barabish, the nomadic populations, which are basically North African, have demanded well in fifty eight they demanded of the French government not to be included in the Mali and Senegalese state because they look north, and so this is what created the problem for the Malian state. If you draw the fifteenth parallel, it goes right across Mali, Niger, Chad, and in the case of Mali, you have a ninety percent black population that is sub Saharan African that control the state and all the goodies of the state and all the institutions and then you have this small percentage up north that are Arab or Turag and they look to the north. And the way that the peace has been kept is either Gaddafi has integrated the Turags into his army or the Algerians have come down and found a sort of peace solution. So this border problem, which is that you put an Arab population with the Sub-Saharan African population, is not working. There has to be some form of autonomy that addresses the problems of the Tuaregs and the nomadic populations. So why? Well, this is why. We can, with the Africans and the French, defeat the Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, but they will be back because it's an ungoverned territory, because the Malian state has never had control over the north of Mali. In fact, the Malian military is afraid to go into the north unless they go with their Tuareg and Barabish allies who know the desert. So there has to be a local security and police force trained and well equipped that can keep the peace in the north. To have that kind of situation, I think you probably have to have some kind of autonomy. The second thing you have to have, I went up to the north a lot, and I took along an interagency team, and we would sit down in Arawan and Boujbea and we'd talk to the leaders, and they would tell us what they needed, and then we would arrange for a well to be sunk or a school to re- be repaired, honestly assistance from the donors never reaches north of the Niger River. And so you have to have a second component, is that you have a local government in Kidal, which is the basically the center of the north, that works with the donors to provide development assistance from that area. Because as long as the money is going to the ministries in Bamako, it's not going to go into the north. So. The issue of autonomy, a site first, borders confirmed, some kind of new government with security and development will have to be done. And that's almost as hard as repairing the Malian state.
0: But it sounds like a very worthwhile investment this political and economic investment for the long term because it seems to me that focusing so narrowly on military solutions is very unlikely, from my perspective, to produce long-standing stability.
2: All three, defeat the Salafists, autonomy in the north, and repair of the Malian state. And Bruce really makes a great point about elections. Unfortunately, the United States, I think, is the worst, but the Europeans as well. It's like, oh, we'll have elections and then we can all go home. Everything is fine. You know, we can pretend like the other problems don't exist. The institutions have to function and then you can have the elections.
0: Perhaps the Mali Eagles captain. Sedu should run for president. I think he'd get a lot of votes <laughs> if uh, they were held this right year. Perhaps uh, one way to, to close this fascinating conversation is to think about Western scholars' role in this uh, crisis. Uh, what should be the response? both to some of the political issues raised, uh, but also to the unfolding military crisis. There's a great article by my colleague David Wiley in uh, the most recent issue of the African Studies Review about the militarization of uh, U.S. foreign policy and the role of uh, U.S. Africanists. Do you think that uh, we as scholars, as a community and as individuals, as citizens, have a role to play? And if so, what what should it be?
1: Well, I can tell you Peter, my own role as a scholar has been not only what's conventionally defined as scholarship and publishing articles in academic journals and, and the like, but as you do yourself, trying to bring the insights from scholarship to a wider audience. And so the blog that you mentioned, Bridges from Bamako, has been my main channel for doing that. And I've heard from people in the US government, in foreign governments, in Mali all over the world who are concerned about what's happening in 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 the Sahel and in the Saharan region. I think as scholars we have we really have a responsibility to bring the insights and analyses that we have outside the halls of academia and try to to influence the public conversation. So that's been one of the goals that I've had in, in keeping the blog that I mentioned. And I've been gratified at the response that I've gotten from a wider public, so I don't really see my role as advocating a particular position. I mean, as an anthropologist, to be honest with you, I'm really not trained to solve policy problems or to assess threats and likely scenarios. What I'm trained to do is to explain context and to help people understand how things got to this point. So. That's where I see my role as, as being concentrated, but I think my colleagues in other disciplines, political scientists, for example, can make their own contributions to helping the rest of the world understand political processes in Bamako and in the rest of the country. I have colleagues who are historians who I think have been playing a vital role, like Greg Mann, like uh, Bas Lecoq, who is based in Belgium. He's a, a scholar of, of Northern Mali and the Touareg in particular. All of us have our contributions to make in terms of bringing lessons from our research to the general public, and that includes policymakers, it includes journalists. Uh, I know all of us have been getting a lot of uh, requests from journalists to do interviews and contribute analyses about what's happening in Mali. So I think that's part of our jobs as scholars, is is not just to remain cloistered in, in the ivory tower. But I know there are also some scholars who who take a, a much more stronger stance toward advocating particular positions, and that's not where I see my personal role, but I, I respect the choices of my peers uh, to, to do that.
2: Can I talk a little bit about militarization? It, it, I hope it's not the final word because it's a little bit off Molly, but Molly brings it up and puts it very clearly. I don't think that there's militarization of the continent. In fact, I think the idea of militarization of the continent has, in fact, led to the problem in Mali. Because instead of providing the Malians and the region the intelligence, the command and control, and the support that was needed to defeat the Salafists when they were 200, not 2,000, this was a preventable war. Instead of doing that, we allowed it to grow because we didn't want to militarize the continent. We didn't want to get too involved. And my point is, when the region asks you, when they say this is beyond our capacity, this is a foreign threat. It is smuggling of cocaine into Europe. It is ransom payments that are building the Salafist. It is Libyan weapons that came from our decision with the United Nations to go to war in Libya that are fueling the conflict, then we actually have a moral obligation to help them clearly on the political side, but more so on the military side because what they're dealing with is a military problem. And the problem is we didn't help them deal with it effectively when it was small. And now it has to be dealt with, with French air power, with African troops, with the UN mandate. That's unfortunate. But if we weren't so afraid of militarizing the continent, if we were more prepared when countries say, you know, we are facing this threat. Can you help us to provide them with that extra mentoring, that extra intelligence, that extra air power or that extra going out with them so that they can win, then we should do it because they're facing an enemy that is beyond their power. And nowhere is this clearer than in southern Somalia. For a long time we were, same as Mali, we'll provide a little bit of training. We'll provide some equipment. And the Salafists, the Al-Qaeda Islamic Maghreb almost pushed the African Union troops into the sea, the Ugandans and the Burundians. We then said, okay, we have to equip them, we have to provide intelligence, and we have to monitor and mentor them. We're not going to Somalia with them, but we will prepare them to fight that battle. And now they're winning. So I think we need to look at the correct use of AFRICOM. We have commands in every region of the world. Africa used to have three commands, and it was merged into one. The command for the Middle East had North Africa. And in North Africa, there had always been U.S. military, and there wasn't a big issue. But this big issue came to Sub-Saharan Africa when the three commands were united into AFRICOM. And I, <laughs> it was maybe the United States' fault, maybe the creation of AFRICOM the way it was done. But I think it created a problem or an issue that actually didn't exist because the three commands were working in Africa in a very competent way in which Africans had agreed with and suddenly when it was combined into one command, it became the militarization of the continent. And of course we don't want to militarize the continent, well, but some, we so don't want to leave the continent on its own.
0: Some have argued that this goes back, obviously, to, for example, the attacks on the embassies in East Africa in Dar es Salaam and Nairobi in 1998. So this precedes Africa by a good decade. That these critics like the Association for Concerned Africa Scholars, among others, have pointed out that the militarization is linked to control of oil resources, for example, Nigeria being one of the top five exporters of oil to the United States, and so military presence by the U.S. would guarantee that flow of oil, and then, of course, partnered with the global war on terror that the Bush administration launched. So I'm not sure that the the militarization should be seen simply as as a reaction to very current contemporary events of the last couple of years. This has actually been going on, according to some, for quite a while. But we can probably have this conversation. <laughs> we can continue this for quite a while. wonderful <laughs> teaching, uh, Why Mali Matters, which uh, features a keynote by Ambassador Vicky Huddleston and also features a wonderful roundtable panel with Bruce Whitehouse, organized by the African Studies Center at MSU. And I know there will be tremendous interest because we have all so much to learn from you and I know I did during this conversation and so thank you Ambassador Huddleston, uh, Dr. Whitehouse for joining us on Africa Past and Present. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters and Social Sciences Online and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Our producer is Annette Janino. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D dot dot Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcaster sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu.